Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. But the outline for this text this morning is a bit simpler, and so I thought we would do without the handout for this one. The title of the sermon today from Genesis 39 is meant to reflect the the irony, sort of the, the paradoxes, maybe the oxymorons in this text. I've titled the sermon, Head Slave and Head Prisoner. Head Slave and Head Prisoner. We're back in the story, the true story of Joseph, who is who is a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's the continuing story of God's God's plan of redemption, which he revealed in Genesis chapter 3, that he would bring a seed, an offspring of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And then that promise of the seed, the offspring, was given to Abraham in covenant and renewed to Isaac and Jacob in, in that same covenant. And also to them were promised um, things along the way, such as a land and a people, a nation. And the end result of all that would be that in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in their offspring, particularly their great offspring in the end, the Messiah, in them all nations of the earth would be blessed. But here... In this final section of Genesis, which Genesis calls the generations of Jacob, the Toledot of Jacob, we see Joseph, his son, the son of his old age, the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who's now dead. We see Joseph be honored by his father and thus resented by his brothers, who are not so honored by their father. We've also seen Joseph's prophesied glory as God gave him dreams that he repeated in the hearing of his brother, his father. So Joseph had prophesied glory that one day his family would bow before him. And then what had not been revealed to Joseph was the path to glory because we saw Joseph's betrayal into slavery. His brothers were going to kill him, but they decided instead to make money off of him. Sell him to the Ishmaelite, the Midianite traders on their way to Egypt. Sell him off to an unknown fate. Be rid of him and his dreams. Well, also last week we saw in chapter 38, um, we saw the account of leave Joseph aside for a while, and we saw the account of Joseph's older brother Judah, the fourth son of Leah. And we saw there terrible sins occur, and yet God's grace arrested Judah in the end. And we'll see throughout the rest of Genesis that Judah is a changed man. But it's interesting, since we just read chapter, we just um, covered chapter 38, But there's a big contrast here in chapters 38 and 39. As Richard Belcher in his commentary puts it, in this story, the character of Joseph is in contrast with the character of Judah in Genesis 38. Judah lived like a Canaanite among the Canaanites. 
But Joseph honors God as he lives among the Egyptians. You'll even see more, um, more particular interesting parallels, such as Judah's quickness to yield to seduction and Joseph's steadfast refusal of it, things like that. But the big idea of this text, I think, it's really about Joseph, not Judah. Here's how I'd word the big idea before we get into it. Because the Lord was with him, unjust suffering fit Joseph for his calling as exalted Savior. I'll say that again. Because the Lord was with him, unjust suffering fit Joseph for his calling as exalted Savior. So let's look at the account in this text point by point, and then we'll get to the applications more directly in the text. The first section of the text is verses 1 through the beginning of verse 6, where we see that the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's service. The Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's service. Let's read verses 1 through 6a. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him, from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Let's pause there. The Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's service. Joseph's brothers could sell Joseph into Egypt, but they had no control over, no knowledge of Joseph's new master. They had no way of knowing where Joseph would end up in Egypt. And Joseph was not sold to an obscure Egyptian. He could have been, but he wasn't. He sold to a high official in Pharaoh's court. That foreshadows, of course, things to come. God has a reason for the very household into which Joseph comes. Now, what does it mean when Scripture says that the Lord was with someone? In this case, the Lord was with Joseph. Obviously, it's not referring to the mere fact that God is present, just present. God is everywhere present all at once. We know that. Scripture says that. But for the Lord to be with certain people in the sense here it means he's with them in the sense of upholding and preserving them and giving them success in his calling for them to have the lord with you is to have him as your unfailing refuge and friend like like abraham was the friend of god scripture says And it doesn't matter what the appearance of your circumstances is, if God is with you, he can be with you 
even if your circumstances don't indicate that. Later in this chapter, this idea of the Lord being with Joseph, it's directly linked to God's steadfast, faithful love. That the Lord gave steadfast love, his steadfast love to Joseph. It's this word for steadfast, faithful love that's the sort of relationship God normally promises in covenant in the scripture. A covenantal sort of committed love. Joseph's brothers had attempted to be forever rid of him. Though they had sold him into slavery in a faraway heathen land, yet Joseph was still the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was his. And Joseph's connection to this God was not just that outward uh, being born into the family of the covenant. It was, wasn't just the outward covenant sign of circumcision. And it wasn't just the earthly promises of that covenant. But as becomes obvious in this text, Joseph shared the faith of his fathers. He had a renewed heart. He knew the Lord. He was a sinner, like all of us, but Joseph was reconciled to the Lord by grace through faith, and his life demonstrated the effects. Especially when the pressure was on. So even in humble service to a a pagan official without even one person who knew his God around him, stripped of all the honor and privileges of his father's household, cut off from his inheritance, degraded from tribal prince to human property, without any outward indication that those prophecies in his dreams would ever happen, in spite of all that, Joseph knew the Lord, his God. And the Lord was with him. Now, let me pause here and talk about us a minute. Um, You could get a very wrong impression from this if you don't take it in the context of all of Scripture. Visible success in the workplace or in business or in finances or property, that does not always mean that the Lord is with someone as he was with Joseph, does it? You could also flip that. The Lord may also be with those who have very little earthly prosperity to show for it, right? So this is not a health and wealth prosperity message. (laughs) However, in Joseph's case, the Lord had a particular calling on his life. And the Lord would surely bring that to pass. Joseph was predestined, as God had said in the dreams, Joseph was predestined To be ruler of Egypt and deliverer of the nations from a coming famine. The Lord was, therefore, training Joseph to effectively rule and manage people and assets. Even under less than optimal circumstances. (laughs) No longer was Joseph his father's favorite emissary, clothed in in that stately robe that made his brothers so mad. That wasn't his position anymore. Exalted above his older shepherd brothers, now Joseph had to work his way up by hard labor and wisdom, and he started as low as possible. A slave boy bought from a foreign caravan. That's entry-level work. Most of you haven't had to start that low. 
But notice that the text does not emphasize Joseph's hard work so much as the Lord's unstoppable blessing. Look at the way the text is worded. It doesn't specifically call out Joseph's hard work very much. What it calls out is the Lord was with Joseph and did this for him. Now, I'm sure Joseph uh, had to work hard to gain the trust of his master the way he did. He had to. But all the glory goes to the Lord. Any good quality inside Joseph and any favorable circumstance outside of him, that was all God's work. And that's what the text focuses on. And so because the Lord was with him, Joseph went from recently arrived slave to steward of the household. Lord of all this aristocrat's property, whether it was in the house or in the field. Joseph was still a slave. He still had a master. But his master left everything but the food up to Joseph. Imagine that. This guy isn't even an Egyptian. He was bought off some caravan from Asia. And suddenly he's over everything. And Potiphar doesn't even concern himself. Is Joseph properly handling my things? My assets? No, he has complete trust in Joseph. Everything but the food. That may have had something to do with the fact that the Egyptians, as is called out later in Genesis, the Egyptians did not eat with foreigners um, such as Joseph was. But in any case, the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's service, and then the text takes a turn right when Joseph seems to actually be on the upward swing, as he seems to be on the rise. We come to the second part of verse 6, down through verse 18, where Joseph's success seemed crushed by a vindictive seductress. Trying to squeeze as many things into as few words as possible there. Joseph's success seemed crushed by a vindictive seductress. Let's look at starting in the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us or to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. 
But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Pause there. This section begins by saying that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So obviously, indicating that Potiphar's wife thought he would be a real catch. But it's interesting, uh, more literally in the Hebrew, he was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. Of course, in English, we would say handsome for a man. There's only one other person in all scripture, as Andrew Stein points out, who is described with the, both those phrases together, beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. And that's Joseph's mother, Rachel. That's interesting color here. But Joseph's master's wife, it never names her. She's just Potiphar's wife. She cast her eyes on Joseph, decided, I want something with this handsome head of the household. Obviously, she despised her husband for one reason or another in this situation. Perhaps she thought she had extra leverage as lady of the house. And she starts out by a brazen proposition. Go to bed with me. As I should only do with my husband. And look at Joseph's response. He outlines all the good that his master has done him. And how wrong it would be to offend his master in this way, betray his trust. And then he ends by saying, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Derek Kidner has words some things very well in his commentary in this chapter. He says, Joseph's reasons for refusal, verses 8 and 9, were those that another man might have given for yielding. So neutral is the force of circumstances. His freedom from supervision and his rapid promotion, which have corrupted other stewards, and he lists scriptures to that effect, and his realization that one realm only was barred to him, which others from Eve onwards have construed as a frustration, were all arguments to him for loyalty. In other words, the same things Joseph is listing off as reasons why he should not give in are the same reasons why a lot of guys would give in. They get a big head because they've been promoted. They think they'll get away with it because everything is left in their charge. There's only one thing that's been kept from them. And most people, sinners, then covet that one thing they can't have. But those are the things Joseph lists as the reason why he should not do this. Derek Kidner finishes, he says, by giving the proposition its right name of wickedness, he made truth his ally. And by relating all to God, he rooted his loyalty to his master deep enough to hold. End of quote. So Christian, Joseph is a good example of how to properly refuse temptation. Not one of us has always done this right. But there's not a one of us believers who cannot do this right right don't have a discontent heart that would use your circumstances as reasons to sin have joseph's thankful heart that uses circumstances as arguments against sin
We'll return to that application later because it deserves a lot more attention, but we need to finish out the account first. Notice also, once Joseph gave this very thorough reason why he would not yield to Potiphar's wife, she's not done. She keeps after him every day, day after day. Again, Derek Kidner, the constant pressure day after day was profoundly searching. It was this that would find out Samson twice in his career. It's the same sort of idea. Samson's wife that he'd married pestered him day after day till he gave her the riddle. Delilah pestered him day after day until he told her the secret of his strength. But Derek Kidner also says, resisted to the end, resisted to the end, the temptation could run its full course and display all its strategy. The first approach, flattering and startling, the long attrition, forever reopening the closed question, now the final ambush, where all is lost or won in a moment. Joseph's flight, unlike a coward's, saved his honor at the cost of his prospects. The New Testament recommends it. Flee youthful passions, the scripture says. Run. That's what Joseph did in the end. And he knew when it was time to have a discussion. He also knew when it was time to have no discussion and run. So it's not, the scripture is not holding up Joseph as someone who was sinless. And yet, because of the very purpose for Joseph's story in the scripture, he is held up as a good example of righteousness. Now, when Potiphar's wife tells the household servants, she has Joseph's cloak in her hand as evidence of what she wants to say. And when she tells the household servants and then her own husband that Joseph tried to assault her, and that's how she got his cloak, uh, she says, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And that word for laugh, as I said, it, it's, um, it's a Hebrew word that can function a variety of ways. It can mean joking. It can mean more harsh mocking, like Ishmael to Isaac. It meant Isaac caressing Rebekah elsewhere in Genesis, more similar to the use here. But there does, does, does seem to be a sexual overtone here. Joseph um, was lied about by Potiphar's wife. She said that he, he so despised and mocked Potiphar's authority and the whole household that he assaulted Potiphar's wife. And so that's what she tells her husband. And as we will see, this does harm Joseph in the short term. Let's go to verses 19 to 23. This is the third and last part of the account in this text. But we see that the Lord was with Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. 
Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It says Potiphar was angry. And in this culture, in this ancient society, what you expect to read next is, and he had Joseph put to death. That would have been the normal penalty for such a crime. It was normal, not just in ancient Israel after this, but in the pagan societies of the time. We have their old law codes. We know this. But Potiphar doesn't call for Joseph's death, which is probably what his wife is seeking. If she can't have Joseph, no one can, and she wants him to die. Potiphar sends Joseph to an elite prison. Notice the text says Potiphar was angry, but it doesn't say exactly who or what he was angry with. It does not say he was angry only with Joseph. He was certainly angry with the entire situation. Whether or not he fully believed his wife, Potiphar was certainly going to lose his trusted steward. This was not good for him. The household that had been running so smoothly under Joseph was going to be in an uproar now. Perhaps Potiphar wanted to believe Joseph guilty and be angry with him rather than cross his wife in front of the household. Maybe he wanted to believe it to a degree for self-preservation. Maybe he didn't want to look like he didn't care about this alleged violation of his trust. What would the other slaves do? What would they try to get by with, you know? But nevertheless, prison rather than death probably raised a few eyebrows. Seems lenient. That seems light. Not a slap on the wrist, but not what we expected. Makes a point of the fact that this is the prison where the king's prisoners were kept, and the fact that Potiphar was in charge of it, apparently. Um, Chapter 40, verses 3 through 4, and chapter 41, verse 10 imply by saying, This prison was under the captain of the guard. It implied this was probably Potiphar himself who was in charge of the prison uh, in the bureaucracy. So perhaps Potiphar is, though he's punishing Joseph, he's also putting him in a place where he can sort of keep an eye on Joseph's welfare. But it's also interesting, there's, there's three distinct settings in Joseph's career in Egypt. There's Potiphar's house, there's the prison, and then there will be Pharaoh's court. And in each of those places, it says the same things, essentially, that God was with Joseph. And in each place, God gives Joseph success. Until he's only the second highest, until he's the second highest in authority with only his master higher than him. Whether it's Potiphar's house, the prison, or Pharaoh's court. We just read about what Joseph's success in prison looked like. That the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
Compare that to what's said later when Pharaoh uh, makes Joseph his governor. Genesis 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph, uh, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then down to verse 44 of that text. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So again, as a commentator puts it, Joseph's outstanding abilities and integrity, crowned with the touch of God, were constant at every level. As prisoner and as governor, he was simply the same man. And he had the same God. I might add. Again, even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And look what God is, how God is again training Joseph. Joseph is learning to govern and provide for people under unfavorable and depressing circumstances. How does a prisoner <laughs> keep a constructive outlook? How does he create good conditions and motivate good behavior in a prison? And this isn't a modern prison where you have perks, perhaps. You, you can get, uh, you know, this didn't have a prison library and a wait room, okay? This is an ancient prison. How do you create good conditions here? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him how. Answering that question, how, how you run something well when it's a prison, as a prisoner yourself, answering that question probably prepared Joseph to govern and provide for a nation that was stricken with famine. Well, again, the big idea of the text was that because the Lord was with him, unjust suffering fit Joseph for his calling as exalted Savior. So how do we apply this text to ourselves? Two ways. First of all, imitate Joseph's stable godliness in difficulty, temptation, and persecution. I'll break that down a bit in a moment. Imitate Joseph's stable godliness in difficulty, in temptation, and in persecution. Right away, as I think about Joseph's story in light of the rest of Scripture, Joseph's example in difficulty reminds me of what the Apostle Peter said to downtrodden Christians who were suffering, who were marginalized, who were sometimes outright persecuted. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they will never say anything bad about you. No, that's not what he says. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All that fits Joseph so perfectly, doesn't it? But Peter says it fits us too. We're sojourners and exiles. We don't belong in this world. 
and we will need to actively abstain, refuse the passions of the flesh, the cravings of sin within us that belongs to that old man, Adam, in us. Abstain from that, refuse it, because it wages war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Joseph is ultimately vindicated, just not in this chapter. Also, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Joseph certainly had to do that in prison in order to succeed even in prison the way he did. Casting all your anxieties on God because he cares for you no matter where you are. The mighty hand of God will, at the proper time, exalt you. That's written to all believers, all saints. Well, you know, such commands are not news to believers. You probably didn't respond with shock when I just read those common New Testament exhortations, right? You know this. We know we ought to abstain from base passions, and keep our conduct honorable. We know we ought to be humble and refuse anxiety, don't we? We know we ought to wait on God, trusting Him to fulfill His promises in due time. But how is that possible when the pressure is on? Remember, remember what we said about discontentment and thankfulness. Don't have a discontent heart that would use your circumstances as reasons for sin. Have a thankful heart which uses circumstances as arguments against sin. We all have circumstances we might change if we could, at least in our own limited understanding of things. Right? There's not a one of us who has everything exactly the way we would have chosen ourselves. Well, you know, an ungrateful, discontent, covetous heart looks for such circumstances. No matter what else is going on, it looks for that to focus on. Joseph had a lot of recent and increasing success, but he was still a slave. And it was all so unjust because he was a slave due to his brother's betrayal. He certainly didn't have a lawful way to be one flesh with a woman, though God had made him with that normal drive. There were the normal frustrations of being a young man in these circumstances. Apparently Potiphar, unlike Pharaoh later in the story, had not got around to supplying Joseph with a wife, as masters often did. Had God's grace not fortified him, Joseph could easily have acted in resentment of these circumstances. But instead, Joseph expressed thankfulness to his heavenly master and his earthly master. Remember what lengths he went to to say how amazed he was at Potiphar's generosity and his trust. And Joseph loved the God who had stuck with him even in slavery. 
How could he betray the trust of his generous master Potiphar, he said. How could he so violate and defraud him? How could Joseph commit such a brazen offense against God? By the way, Potiphar's wife doesn't care about Joseph's God. But that didn't stop Joseph from declaring his allegiance to that God. Joseph did not simply say, well, what do I have in common with her culture? And let me just draw on that. No. Joseph did not simply convict her conscience of her husband's rights, but he went on to convict her conscience of her creator's rights. He was not embarrassed of the true God, even though this domineering Egyptian woman would have thought his God just the quaint deity of some backward shepherds. Joseph didn't care. He was loyal to God and not ashamed of his God. And he brought God into the equation. What about you, Christian? When the world presents you with temptation, are you embarrassed of your God? Are you embarrassed of his law of righteousness? Or are you ungrateful to him, which leaves room in your heart for sin's enticements? There's something in you that just grinds its teeth that God hasn't done this for me. And then there's plenty of room for temptation. Or do you remember that every good thing you have, and we all have good things, chief among them the things we share today on the Lord's Day, are you, do you remember that every good thing you have, everything good is a gift from God, your Creator, your Savior. Will you tell that old serpent, the devil, that the Lord God has provided you richly with many trees to enjoy, and therefore you will not eat of the forbidden tree? You will not steal another man's wife or another woman's husband. You will not steal from your employer or from your neighbor or from the government. You will not steal a person's reputation with slander. You will not usurp authority by dishonoring and disobeying someone above you. You will not steal God's glory for yourself in proud boasting. And you won't even entertain covetous, greedy desire for another man's wife or his property or his reputation or his advantages you don't have. The Lord is with you if you are a believer. So what more could you ask or want? That's the attitude that will guard you from temptation. Joseph exemplifies, as we've said, stable godliness in difficulty, in temptation, but also in persecution. And even when Joseph was unjustly accused and imprisoned, we don't see a hint of bitterness or despair in Joseph. Now, obviously, this account is it's selective to move the plot along, to make certain points. I'm sure, since Joseph was a sinner like the rest of us, I'm sure he had bad days. And yet, his stable character was such that he was soon entrusted with the affairs of the entire prison. How does that happen? I don't think that was normal protocol. Take a prisoner in, put him in charge of everything. That's not how this works normally. 
Imagine interacting, if you're Joseph, imagine interacting with the very man who initially views you as a perverted criminal, who shackles you and afflicts you with the harsh methods of ancient prisons. Imagine interacting with that person, that prison warden, in such a way that he decides to put you in charge of the place. Joseph's conduct under severe persecution by Potiphar's wife and unjust treatment by Potiphar and the, and the prison keeper, that kind of stable godliness reminds us of how the saints have to all respond to tribulation and to personal injustice. Turn to Romans 12 with me, please. Romans 12. In the next chapter, Romans 13, after where we are turning, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the role of civil government as God's minister of vengeance on criminal evil. So there is a place for proper government authorities to seek just vengeance in this life. They are actually accountable to God to avenge criminal acts like physical abuse, like robbery, like murder. But in the verses right before that, where I'm taking you, Romans chapter 12, Paul reminds us of our individual role. Our individual personal role is that of blessing evil people, not avenging ourselves on them. When we have personal enemies, whether it's because they just don't like us or maybe they don't like our Lord, we're not to be overcome by their evil. We're not to imitate their evil deeds in retaliation, but we're supposed to overcome their evil with good, it says. Romans 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, in high-pressure situations, that is. Be constant in prayer. Chuck down to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's that's all a good application, a proper and essential application of Joseph's example here. But there's something bigger at work also in Joseph's story, as we point out each sermon through here. Not only must we imitate Joseph's stable godliness in difficulty, temptation, and persecution, but second, consider the unjust sufferings. Consider the unjust sufferings of the Lord's anointed. Joseph's story was recorded for our learning on more than one level. 
So yes, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph is an example of the man of faith. He walks by faith with God. He's an example of a believer's relationship with the Lord. So we'd be foolish to ignore how his story illustrates various aspects of godly living. But that's not the greatest reason for Joseph's story in Genesis. Remember what became apparent from the very beginning of Joseph's story. Moses is writing things down carefully. He's carefully recording certain things about Joseph to reveal very specific patterns. Patterns which Israel should recognize in the future. The Spirit of God guided Moses' pen to record exactly what Israel would need and, Paul says, what we would need to recognize the patterns of God's ways. Specifically, we've seen before how Stephen emphasized in Acts chapter 7, or what he emphasized in Acts chapter 7. Stephen rehearsed the stories of Joseph and Moses And he emphasizes that in each case, God sends his people a savior whom they naturally despise and reject. A savior designated as God's chosen ruler, and because of that, envied by his brethren. A savior whose only path to glory is deep humiliation and affliction. A savior consigned to obscurity and delivered over to affliction in order to save his people. A savior whose unjust suffering is his greatest triumph. This storyline, this plot, whether we find it in Genesis or Exodus or elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's always the shadow of a coming figure who's greater than all before him. Jesus Christ is the king of Israel greater than David. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the sovereign savior greater than Joseph. Consider his unjust sufferings. Joseph suffered to deliver his people from famine and death. Later, Joseph says this in Genesis. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. But the only path there was this humiliation, this suffering. Chapter 39 and chapter 40. Jesus, though, suffered far worse to save his people from sin and death. In fact, people of God, Jesus suffered in our place the just penalty for our crimes. God the Father unleashed his holy displeasure, his hot wrath on Jesus' his son, rather than on us. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Joseph 
was falsely labeled a transgressor. But it was far worse for Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth suffered far worse injustice than Joseph, or we will ever suffer. Look how 1 Peter 2, turn there, 1 Peter 2, look how the Apostle Peter adapts Isaiah 53 for us. First Peter 2, starting in verse 18. And see if this doesn't sound like Joseph, especially in the beginning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. All this is Isaiah 53, notice. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You cannot get the details of life right and follow Joseph's good example before you reckon with the greater Savior than Joseph, before you reckon with his sufferings. How must you respond to this suffering Savior, now risen to reign? You have to trust in his person and what he's done to the degree that you entrust your soul to him. You're throwing yourself on him entirely. You have to turn from your own way, your own sinful autonomy from God, wanting to be a law to yourself. And you have to cling to Jesus' death and resurrection to reconcile you to God, to make you right with God. Because apart from Jesus Christ, you are not right with God. You one day must face God's justice and be eternally crushed by it. But once you're in Jesus Christ, who suffered in the place of sinners, you'll be forgiven and justified. More than that, you'll be adopted by God. You'll be destined to share Jesus' glory when you didn't earn it. And then, once you're reconciled to God in Christ, you will begin the wonder of eternal life. And eternal life is not all about but you can get for yourself and just having a, a never-ending life. Eternal life, as Scripture defines it, is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And the better you get to know Jesus, the more you realize you can never climb the heights, you can never sound the depths of his sufferings. His glorious suffering. The more you know Jesus the crucified, the more you realize you can never exhaust the wonder and the glory of his humiliation, his affliction, 
his cross and what that means. Do you know Jesus like that? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that he delights to throw everything away, that he may know Jesus and not only the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you know Jesus that way? Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I I do not know the details of... I don't know the details of what you mean to do with this text and its applications in the hearts of the people here. Because I'm not you, I do not have anywhere close to that infinite knowledge. I know very little, even of myself. But Lord, I'm confident this is your word. I thank you for your help in using a very flawed herald of of it. But Lord, please, may your Holy Spirit be pleased to work great good in our hearts through your word that's been breathed out and now preached today. And we pray for those here also who have not taken the first step at all. Those who do not know the Lord Jesus and do not understand the wonder, the glory of his sufferings. Please open their eyes and their hearts to that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.